Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Hans von Spakovsky. He is a senior legal, legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, where he runs the Election Law Reform Initiative. He's also a former commissioner on the Federal Election Commission. He has a new book co-written with John Fund entitled Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote, our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Van Spakovsky. Mark, thanks for having me on. And please call me Hans. (laughs) We'll do it. Uh, Now, you wrote uh, also not only your experience with the commission, but you also wrote a book 10 years ago entitled Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. Uh, First, before we get to the current book, what what were the main points of argument in that previous book? Well, John Fon and I wrote that previous book because at the time the the kind of myth or meme that the media was starting to push uh, with the help of the progressive left was that there's no election fraud in the country. We don't need to worry about it. And so what we did in that book was we went through and we illustrated actual, real, proven cases of fraud, all the different ways it occurs. And at the end of it, we had a list of recommendations on how states should um, improve their election laws to try to fix those vulnerabilities. One thing you note in terms of the difficulty of doing this is that right and left don't really agree on the, the way to regard voting, the nature of voting itself. Uh, you say the polarization extends to their conception of what, of what the vote is. Where do right and left diverge on this sort of fundamental, basic American activity. You know, what's interesting about that is that I think this is a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, if you go back 30, 40 years, you'll find that um, it it was a bipartisan concern over uh, election integrity. But what's happened in the past really more than a decade is that uh, this divergence has come. And on the one side, you have uh, folks on the left, left side of the political aisle who their only concern is access, pure access. Um, they they want to make sure that everybody is able to vote. They don't really care whether it's somebody who might not be eligible, like a non-citizen. Um, whereas I think folks on the right side of the political aisle say, look, you have to have both access and security. And the dichotomy is that is those who push just for access think uh, that you can't have both. But you can't have both access and security. And I think that is a false um, assumption. I think you can have both access, one in which you make sure everybody 
who's entitled to is able to vote, but that you also have security to prevent, I mean, not just fraud, but you know, mistakes, errors, and omissions by election officials that, that potentially disenfranchise voters. And would you say that that divergence now is simply a matter of the left making a political calculation which says that, you know, uh, for whatever reasons, when we just open access to all, we're going to get more votes. Democrats are going to get more votes than Republicans are going to. Or when you give them a sort of a deeper social, philosophical approach to things that isn't all just about partisan politics. I think it's a mixture of both, just depending on who you're, who you're talking to. On the one hand, I think uh, there are folks who um, uh, want, for example, you know, and here's, a, here's an area of that comment, want non-citizens to be able to register and vote because they think it will help them win elections. And one of the very specific examples that we give of this, including in the book, is that, uh, look, in Virginia some years ago when Terry McAuliffe was the governor, as you know, he recently tried to get reelected and lost. But several years ago when he was the, <clears throat> the governor, the legislature passed a very simple bill. It simply said that if you got called for jury duty in state courts and you were excused because you were not a U.S. citizen, that information needed to be sent to county election officials so they could check and see, well, is this person registered to vote? So they could be taken off because it's illegal for, for an alien to register to vote. Um, Terry, McAuliffe, Terry McAuliffe vetoed that bill. Now, there's no possible reason for vetoing that bill unless you want non-citizens to be able to register to vote and to get away with it, even though it's illegal under both state and federal law. On the other hand, look, you have folks uh, like the city councilman in New York City who just a week or so ago um, pushed through and got past a bill that allows non-citizens to vote in local elections. He, he said he's doing it because he believes that these individuals have a right to make decisions in local elections. I don't, I don't think that's correct. I think he's deva devaluing citizenship by doing that. But, you know, he seemed pretty sincere in his, his view of that. And will, 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 that support, will that survive a legal challenge to say non-citizens can vote? Isn't something wrong here legally? Well, it depends on what state you're in. Um, in, in, in every single state, uh, they have laws or a constitutional provision that prevents um, aliens from voting in state elections. Federal law prevents aliens from registering and voting in federal elections. Um, most, in most of the states, that law also covers local elections. So for example, just a couple of years ago, a, a small town in Connecticut wanted to do this and they didn't because state law in Connecticut prevented aliens from uh, voting in both state and local elections. Uh, I actually think that what New York City did is potentially problematic because I believe that the New York Constitution actually uh, has a prohibition that extends to both state and local elections. On the other hand, California doesn't have a prohibition like that for local elections. And so San Francisco some years ago actually became the first really big city to pass an ordinance uh, allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections. Hmm. You know, why do, you mentioned that for, for several years, the media 
have been pounding the message that election fraud does not exist. Now, Hans, I presume that an investigative reporter would have a nose for, for fraud and be inclined to, to be suspicious. Why, why are the media so on board with the, the, the myth of fraud? Look, I have to say that I think it's their political biases influencing uh, what they're doing. And I say that because I've, I've dealt with a lot of journalists who have called me doing stories about this. And I can't tell you how many times, and I'm sure John Fond, my co-author, could tell you the same thing. I, I can't tell you how many times. I've had a reporter doing a story on election fraud, and I've told them about specific proven cases of fraud. And yet when the story appears, there's no mention of them whatsoever, because that would interfere with their narrative, uh, that there's no, um, no election fraud or that it just doesn't occur often enough to be concerned about it. Now, the American people, one of the values of the book is you bring in a lot of data showing the American people are squarely in favor of maintaining that that component you mentioned earlier of security. Yeah. They they so this is yeah. not this is this is an elite partisan media politician phenomenon, correct? Yeah, no, exactly right. In fact, the the constituents of uh, people on the left just just don't agree with them. And again, uh, just on one one example that we give, when it comes to voter ID, as you know, uh, the, the leadership of the left says uh, that's a terrible thing to do, that it leads to voter suppression, all of which is factually incorrect. But if the polling shows that a, an overwhelming majority of Americans, and that doesn't matter what race or ethnicity they are, it doesn't matter which political party they support, say that voter ID, yes, that's a common sense requirement, and they think states ought to be doing it. Another value of the book is the number of, again, specific demonstrable cases of shenanigans taking place. And let, let me ask you about one of them. What happened in Antrim County, Michigan in 2020? Well, as folks know, um, there were a lot of suspicions about the voting equipment being used there because the county kept misreporting results. This was a county that in the past had um, you know, a strong Republican county had had voted for Trump before, and the first results they posted showed Joe Biden winning, and then three or four times they had kept kept having to change the results. So folks were suspicious that this was being done through some kind of hack into the voting equipment or the computers tabulating the vote. So Antrim County actually did something very smart. Uh, along with the state authorities, they actually hired a computer expert, a very, a very well-known computer security expert from the University of Michigan. In fact, he's testified before Congress on numerous occasions. He's not, he's somebody who's, who's very skeptical about, uh, the, about internet voting and things like that. Anyway, he did a complete audit of the election. And what his audit revealed was that there wasn't a machine error, there wasn't a software issue. Um, human errors were made by election officials there on top of even more human errors. And that's what caused it. He, he, he did this in depth. 
I mean, he looked at the computer logs of the equipment to make sure that there wasn't a problem with the computer, computer software and hardware. And what he said at the end was that, you know, this was a human error. It was not, um, it was not computer malware doing this, although he also recommended um, changes in the software being used because he did find security flaws that he said should be corrected. So Antrim County was not an instance that a lot of people thought of, of uh, computer voting equipment somehow changing the results. Did, who ended up winning Antrim County, Biden or, or Trump? Trump did. At the end, they, okay. finally, they finally got it right and declared Trump a winner. Uh, do you have reservations about electronic voting? You talk about electronic voting a lot in, in the book, and you, you actually are skeptical of some of the, as you applied a moment ago, you're skeptical of some of the claims that were made by Sidney Powell and others about electronic voting. But if you step back, do you, would you like to see electronic voting curtailed or even eliminated? Uh, I think it just needs to be done in the right way. And let me explain what I mean just very quickly. Um, look, electronic voting machines actually are required at least one in every precinct by federal law because it's the only way that people who are disabled, particularly those who are blind, can vote without assistance. And so uh, 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 a lot of people who are blind really like them. But, but the kind of equipment that ought to be used is not, not electronic voting machines where you simply vote on the machine and that's it. So there's only an electronic record of what you've done. The best kind of electronic voting machines are those that after you vote on the screen, it actually prints out a list of the people you voted for so you can actually check it and make sure it recorded the names correctly. And then you take that sheet of paper and you feed it into a, uh, through a computer scanner where it drops into a ballot box. And the point of that is that um, you then have an audit trail. So if at some point there's some allegations or proof that the software was somehow hacked, guess what you have? You have the, the, the paper backup of the ballots so that you can uh, hand count them, hand review them, and make sure you got the count right. That kind of electronic voting equipment, I don't have a problem with, although I, I, we also specify very carefully that None of those machines, not only should those kind of machines not be hooked up to the Internet, they shouldn't even have modems in them that make them capable of being hooked into the Internet to, to try to provide the kind of widespread network attacks you could have if, if in fact, uh, they were hooked into the Internet. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, you, you, you talk in the book about the pandemic. Uh, how right. did Democrats use the pandemic to, as we talk about the, you know, the title of your book, to alter the way we voted in 2020? 
Well, the, 2020 was kind of the culmination of changes they've been trying to make for, for years, often unsuccessfully. And what they did was they tried to use um, COVID as an excuse now to get those changes made. And so, for example, um, they sued the states of Alabama and South Carolina and said, well, because of COVID, you, Alabama, you shouldn't be able to enforce your voter ID law. And the state should not be able to enforce it witness signature requirement on absentee ballots. You know, that's one of the only ways a witness signature requirement that you, you've actually had a witness who can verify, yeah, it really was the voter who filled out the absentee ballot. Um, and they use COVID as an excuse for that. Fortunately, both of those cases uh, lost. And one of the reasons, for example, in the South Carolina case, where, again, they were trying to say that there should be no witness signature requirement on absentee ballots was because South Carolina brought in an infectious disease specialist who was the head of their infectious disease division within the University of South Carolina Medical School who came in and said, look, um, having a witness uh, wearing a mask six feet away and spending, you know, 30 seconds a minute watching a voter um, sign their uh, absentee ballot form doesn't in any way put them in serious risk of uh, being infected and is a lot less serious than what just about everybody was doing during the pandemic, which was going out to grocery stores and pharmacies and other places uh, to pick up, you know, food and, and drugs and things like that. But Hans, in, in some of those battleground states that turned, like Pennsylvania and right. Michigan, did we see a lot of these alterations go through? Yes, and that was the other thing I, I was going to talk about. They, they also used COVID, for example, in Pennsylvania, which is probably one of the worst states, um, where they said, well, yeah, perhaps there is a deadline under state law for absentee ballots to be in by the end of election day, which is the best practice. Uh, but we're just not going to bother to enforce that law. We're going to accept absentee ballots coming in after election day and then the court said oh and by the way um the law that says that election officials have to compare signatures on absentee ballots make sure they match the signatures of, of the voter on file uh we're just we're not going to allow you to reject any ballots where the signatures don't match and all of this because of covid well covid has nothing to do with either of those requirements um and yet, uh, unfortunately, the courts not only approved this, but went along with it. And those were the rules in, in place in the state. And it's a situation where you, you, in essence, had executive and judicial branch officials saying, we're just not going to comply with the state laws set up by the legislature. That's not the way our democracy is supposed to work. And Pennsylvania had a Republican-controlled legislature, correct? Uh, and, and if that's the case... Couldn't, they couldn't appeal that to the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, they did, and uh, courts refused to really do anything about it, which, again, in itself is problematic. I mean, one of the things we talk about in the book is the failure in some of these very important cases for the courts to stop what was, what was happening. And I think that was a failure of, of them doing their duty as they should have. Uh, one of the frustrating things in your in your book, uh, we talked about this a little before we went on. <laughs> the book is a great read, very well written, very clearly presented in, in detail, and very dramatic at, at certain points. But as as a reader, you must say, 
why in the world, how did we end up with progressive judges willing to suspend the law, the Constitution, on such flimsy grounds of public safety? How did that happen, Hans? Well, in the state courts, it's because uh, some years ago, there was a dedicated effort, again, by progressive groups to find candidates and fund their campaigns for uh, uh, state judgeships in the states that elect judges. Um, and in the federal courts, uh, part of the reason for that, and you could see it in last year's election, almost all of the injunctions that were granted to liberal groups to basically say it was okay to not comply with state Almost all of them came from Obama judges. And, and that's because when Barack Obama was president, he, I think without any doubt, um, nominated and got confirmed to the federal courts the most liberal, frankly, left-wing uh, folks who've ever sat in federal judgeships. Hmm. Uh, a general question. What is lawfare? Lawfare. What is that? Lawfare is something the left has adopted in recent years, and it's using the courts to obtain what you can't get through the democratic process. And again, we had unfortunate examples of this last year in what I would call collusive lawsuits. Uh, lawfare in a collusive lawsuit is where uh, a liberal organization that wants to, for example, they want a state to change its law to say that they will no longer compare signatures on absentee ballots when they come in. They can't convince the legislature to change that rule. Uh, but let's say the state has a liberal um, secretary of state or a liberal governor who likes that idea. Well, what they do is they file a lawsuit against um, the governor and the secretary of state saying, oh, this, this law requiring a comparison of signatures is uh, unconstitutional or it's discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act. And what happens is the governor and the secretary of state, instead of fighting what is really a frivolous or meritless claim, says, oh, we agree, you're right, we'll agree to settle the case. And they enter into a settlement in which they say, yep, we will waive that requirement of state law. A judge rubber stamps it, and the case ends, and the state law has been changed through uh, lawfare, not because the democratically elected representatives of the state legislature decided to change the law. And I guess the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has shown that it just, you know, maybe it's the Roberts court. It just doesn't, it, it, it hesitates to get involved in these, in, in state level lawfare. Is that right? Yeah, but it, it, yes. And the reason is, is that if, um, if state officials are willing to um, waive the law, you know, it's not really up to them. They don't believe to, to do anything about it. And, uh, the best example of this occurred some years ago when uh, North Carolina passed its voter ID law. At that time, it had a Republican governor, Republican attorney general, it was a Republican legislature. They were sued. Um, they, they won in the district court. District court says nothing discriminatory about this law. They lost 
in the federal court of appeals before a three-judge panel uh, headed by some Obama appointees. Um, and so they appealed, the attorney general appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in the meantime, there was an election. <laughs> a, Democrat, a Democrat got elected as the attorney general. He had been a state legislator who had voted against the voter ID law. A Democratic governor came in and the uh, new Democratic attorney general withdrew the appeal before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court issued a decision saying, look, it's not up to the legislature objected to that. But the Supreme Court issued an order, Justice Roberts, saying, look, it's not up to us to determine who in the state has the authority to pursue uh, an appeal. Therefore, we're we're throwing the case out. Yeah. Another episode that you focus on was after the election, the state of Texas uh, filed lawsuit. Well, why don't you tell us about the state of Texas's lawsuit against other states and what happened when it went to the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's one situation where I really think the court um, dodged its obligations. The state of Texas filed a petition directly with the U.S. Supreme Court. The reason for that is if you look at the Constitution, if a state wants to sue another state, um, the U.S. Supreme Court has direct jurisdiction over that. So a state, they, they don't file their lawsuit with a federal district court or a federal court of appeals. They go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Texas, uh, but the Supreme Court has issued rules saying, well, we'll only allow one state to sue another state if we say it's okay. Texas filed a lawsuit on behalf of itself and a number of other states saying that um, the waiver of the rules, the collusive lawsuits entered into in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, def basically defrauded uh, Texas and these other states of an election that was in conformance with the U.S. Constitution. They made a a, a real point about the fact, as we talked about earlier, that in Pennsylvania, for example, it wasn't the state legislature, which under the U.S. Constitution is the one designated with establishing the rules for federal elections. It wasn't they, them that, that changed the rules on absentee ballots. You know, it was just a state court saying, yep, we're just going to do this. And they asked for permission uh, to file this lawsuit with the Supreme Court. They laid out in great detail a very good summary of what happened in last year's election. And the U.S. Supreme Court, unfortunately, said, no, we're not going to allow you to file this lawsuit. Uh, we don't think you have standing to do it because you don't have a right uh, to say anything about what happened in other states or the way they did or did not enforce the law. I think that was wrong because how those other states conducted the elections could possibly affect the national outcome of the election, which each state has a, uh, an interest in. So I think the, the, the Supreme Court dodged what would have been a very thorny political situation yeah. and said, you can't file this lawsuit. Let's turn to absentee ballots. Uh, what in the past, what were absentee ballots originally created for? What was their intention? I mean, how often were they used? And then what happened with absentee ballots in 2020? Well, first of all, we're unusual as a country. I don't think a lot of people realize that uh, many other countries in the world, like most of them, do not allow absentee ballots. Um, 
They started in the United States in 1864, and it's because um, Abraham Lincoln faced a very difficult re-election. You know, there were a lot of folks that wanted to enter in an armistice with the South and end the Civil War, which was killing a, a lot of people. And um, uh, Republicans uh, realized that there were a lot of Union uh, armed men in the field uh, as part of the Union Army and would not be able to vote. And so they started the idea of absentee balloting to allow uh, those Union Army soldiers to be able to vote, even though they weren't at home. And in fact, uh, there was a proof in election fraud case in that first election with the governor of New York and others basically stealing soldiers absentee ballots and filling them out because they didn't want Abraham Lincoln to win the election. But anyway, that's when it started. Um, over the years recently, uh, states have relaxed their rules on absentee ballots. Uh, it used to be in every state you required an excuse. To use an absentee ballot, That's what I as in you're going to be, yeah, you're going to be out of town or uh, you're too sick to make it to the polling place. Unfortunately, many states now have relaxed that and have moved to no fault absentee, which means they just allow anybody uh, to use an absentee ballot. And and the, the problem with absentee ballots is they're the easiest ballots to to steal and then to alter. They also put voters in the position of having. Uh, candidates and campaign staffers and others being able to come to their homes and pressure them and uh, try to coerce them to vote a particular way, something that they that those staffers and others can't do inside a polling place. And so they are the most vulnerable ballots when it comes to uh, problems. Yeah. And it exploded last year, right? Y yes, because again, um, uh, liberals went to court saying because of COVID, why it's too dangerous for people to vote in person, um, something that just simply wasn't true. Uh, the CDC issued guidelines saying, look, as, you, as long as you follow the precautions that were being followed, you know, everywhere else, grocery stores and elsewhere, wear masks, clean voting surfaces, six foot distance, it would be perfectly safe. But uh, they said, well, we can't do that, and so we need to have everybody voting by mail. And so states should do things like uh, mail out, uh, mail in or absentee ballot to every single registered voter, which, of course, I, is I, very uh, problematic because, I, I got, because voter rolls are in such bad shape. Yeah, I, I got one in Virginia that, that wasn't just saying, if you want this, you may do it. It was actually encouragement. It urged me yes. to do absentee, yes. <laughs> absentee balloting, which there's no way I was going to. To, to do that, but uh, yeah, and, and absentee ballots have traditionally leaned heavily Democrat, true? Well, I know they, I know that's the belief, and it may have happened in the last election because the folks on the right side of the political aisle were, were urging people to vote in person, but look, which, whichever side, yeah, whichever side it, it, um, it, it may be an advantage to. It's just a bad idea for everyone because, like I said, the, the ballots are so easily stolen and altered and absentee ballot fraud cases, uh, you see them all too often. Yeah. You, you, you brought up something that I'd never heard of before. In 2011, a Yale University student looked at ballots from Indiana in the Democratic primary. What did he find? Uh, 
actually this was yeah yeah he, he uh in, from, from Indiana, 2008 the, the the democratic primary from 2008 right 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 but he only started looking at it later um yeah the, the, again this is not speculation this is a proven case in fact four folks were eventually convicted of of doing this so uh, we're not just speculating here um Indiana is one of the states where if you want to be a candidate on the ballot, you have to get a certain number of voters to sign your ballot petition. Many states have requirements like this. He started looking at the ballot petitions that were used to qualify um, Barack Obama to be on the May presidential uh, primary ballot in Indiana in 2008. He was struck by the fact that many of the signatures looked alike. It looked like they'd been written by the same person. Uh, he took it to a local newspaper. They hired a handwriting expert. The handwriting expert came back and said, these are all forged. <laughs> it was eventually sent to the district, local district attorney, and they ended up um, prosecuting and convicting four locals, including the manager of the, or chairman of the county uh, Democratic Party, who it turned out had forged all of these signatures on the ballot petitions that got Barack Obama qualified to be on the ballot in Indiana, if this had been discovered at the time, uh, he would not have qualified for the ballot because they forged so many signatures. And people often say, well, you know, even fraud when it occurs, it has no real effect. Think, Think about what the effect might have been in May of 2008. Remember, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were in a heated fight for the nomination on the Democratic side if one of those candidates had been disqualified from the ballot in a state like Indiana. Could that have changed that momentum? I don't know. We don't know. We'll never know. But uh, the fraud, if it had been discovered, uh, he would not have been on the ballot in Indiana. Hmm. What is ranked choice voting? And, and why, why should we have suspicions about it? Ranked choice voting is the latest, latest uh, uh, change in voting rules that the progressive left has come up with. And um, it's, it's confusing. It's chaotic. In fact, it's so confusing that Jerry Brown, when he was still governor of California a couple of years ago, actually vetoed an effort to expand ranked choice voting in California. So even he said it was confusing and chaotic and, and you shouldn't do it. In essence, what it means is that you get rid of all runoff elections where the top two candidates run against each other. Nobody's gotten a majority on election day. And instead, voters are supposed to rank the candidates uh, from their first choice to their last choice. So, for example, if there are five individuals running for mayor, and this actually uh, happened in uh, New York recently, um, you take, you as a voter are supposed to take the five candidates and rank them one, two, three, four, five, according to your first choice, all the way to your fifth and last choice. And if the, if no candidate wins a majority of the voters, well, then you throw out, um, the fifth choice of folks, uh, or, I'm sorry, the first choice of folks, uh, whoever came in last, and you switch to their second choice. 
And you keep doing rounds like this until one, one candidate has gotten uh, enough votes to be a majority, even if, it's, even if that person is the second, third, fourth, or fifth choice of voters. Um, it's, if it sounds confusing to folks, it is. And what it leads to is lots of voters being disenfranchised. The reason being what social scientists have called a, a ballot exhaustion. Most people going in, there's five candidates. They're not going to rank all five candidates. They might rank their, their first and second choices, but not all five. And if you haven't ranked all of the voters and they get to a second, third, fourth, or like in the New York uh, mayor's race, <laughs> uh, eight or nine rounds, you're, if you didn't rank the, the voters, then you're not going to be included in the final rounds. And uh, thousands of voters uh, basically end up, uh, their, their ballots get thrown out and, and their choice doesn't count in the later rounds. The book, there, there's much, much more to talk about in the book. And I, I urge people to take a look at a lot of the analysis of what happened in 2020 in different states. But for now, the book is Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Mr. Van Spakovsky, thank you for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.